With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and Tiller Rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanford, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 25 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139335. Today is Thursday, March 17th, 2016. I'm your host, Greg DeGoose, wishing you all a very happy St. Patrick's Day and that the luck of the day runs long into your lives and challenges. Today also marks the halfway point in our very first year of programming. Please grab your favorite drink, spike it with some green food coloring, and raise a glass with us in a toast to six months of the Gallant Goose and Friends, which, of course, without each and every one of you, would be a very pale ale. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. Our topic tonight is, are you ready to go to the head of the class, action, or when to fly solo or join a flock? Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the practices of debt collection firms. They have well-oiled machines which are designed to intimidate and extract money from you, even if not justified. They rely upon you being ignorant of the law and feeling guilty about not being in a better financial position now or at an earlier point in your life. Some people have even sold their cars to title loan sharks or taken out second mortgages just to make the calls and letters stop. Tonight, 
We have the opportunity to learn a little bit more about what our consumer rights really are and how to put an end to debt collection harassment without putting an end to our sanity. This week we have a special guest who has been on the cutting edge of consumer defense and class action litigation for the past 14 years as an attorney and educator. Joshua Swigert of Hyden Swigert has carved out some time from his busy schedule to be with us this evening. But before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everyone. For those who don't already know, here's a little bit about our guest. Joshua B. Swiger was born in Orange County, California. He earned his undergraduate degree from the University of California at Riverside, where he received a Bachelor of Science in Business with a double emphasis in Accounting and Finance. He attended California Western School of Law on an academic scholarship and graduated cum laude. Josh is a partner in the law firm of Hyde and Swigert and is a licensed attorney admitted to the State Bar of California as well as Washington, D.C. He is a member of the San Diego County Bar Association, Riverside County Bar Association, San Bernardino County Bar Association, the National Association of Consumer Advocates, the Federal Bar Association, Consumer Attorneys of California, and the American Association of Justice, as well as the Enright Ends of Court. Dedicated to the protection of consumers against abusive and illegal practices by debt collectors, over the past 14 years he's handled over a thousand consumer actions, including numerous national class actions. Many of the cases he has settled resulted in tens of millions of dollars for his clients. Josh regularly presents his lectures on cutting-edge consumer-related issues, including MCLE programs, on class action developments, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, and most recently as a featured speaker at the 2016 Fair Debt Collection Practices Conference. With offices in seven states, Josh is a recognized national expert in consumer protection law. Here he is with us tonight to give us a better understanding of the cutting edge of legal defenses available to homeowners, college students, consumers in general, and when to fly alone or when to fly with a flock in a class action. We welcome tonight Josh Swigert. Hello, Josh. Yes, good evening. How are you tonight? Doing very well. Thanks for, uh, for having me on. Thank you very much for being here. So to get started, uh, would you like to tell the folks at home a little bit about what just what Hyden Swigert is all about, what you do, and how you found yourself focusing on consumer protection. Uh, sure. I mean, I guess I can start with the last question first. I mean, how we uh, how I became involved in the, the area of consumer rights. I mean, I, I grew up, um, you know, with a, with a with a single mom raising two young kids, myself and my brother, and 
you know, we weren't very well off at all. So, you know, I, I observed firsthand how, how tough it is to make ends meet with, you know, one income and, and raising two growing boys. Um, so I, I saw, you know, her struggles and her inability, not because she necessarily wanted to run up her credit card bills, but just because she had to provide things, uh, the necessary things for life. And, uh, and I saw how, how our family was, was on the receiving end of some of the abusive collection letters and phone calls and tactics and, uh, and saw how it affected my family. So, you know, I was able to put myself through school and eventually go to law school. And, and when I was able to, to graduate and pass the bar, there's really nothing else I wanted to do more but, but to practice in the area of consumer rights. And, and so that's really the, uh, the motivation behind starting the firm. And for the past 14 years, we've done fairly well and been able to represent hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of consumers on some of these class cases um, through many states in, in the country. And and uh, it's been a great ride and a privilege for the last couple of years. So tell us a little bit about what Haydn Swigert is about. I think I read that uh, you were actually uh, college classmates or law school classmates. Uh, with uh, with my partner, right, Robert Hyde. Uh, we, we met each other in law school and we went to law school together, studied together for the bar and, and, and opened uh, our law office really just, uh, you know, out of a small office in, in downtown San Diego about 14 years ago. You know, dealing with all related uh, consumer matters that, that had to deal with debt. So it could be, you know, credit card debt, um, you know, auto uh, debt, um, even even mortgage debt as well. So we, we started in San Diego and you worked up from there. You know, the small cases is, is really where it starts, but I think once you get a little more experience, you recognize that it's just not, you know, your client who's being affected by, you know, a debt collector or a creditor. It's more of, um, you know, if, if it's happening to your client, it's probably happened to tens of thousands, thousands of others. Um, and so that's kind of where we brought in some of the, the, the class action vehicles to, to effectuate a little bit more change. Did you have a mentor in terms of developing your knowledge and skills on class actions? You know, that, that's a very good question. Not really. I mean, like I said, you know, earlier, I mean, I grew up in a pretty, pretty not very well-to-do family. My mom, you know, worked minimum wage jobs. My dad, when uh, I spent time with him, he's a school teacher. So I really didn't have anybody I could look up to in the field of, of law. Um, you know, I was I was lucky enough going through and, you know, earning your stripes, if, if you'd say, um, where I had a couple of judges, you know, pull me aside and try to give me some guidance and, and some um, some thoughts about practice development. So, you know, that's really the just some of the local um, practitioners and judges in town were, were able to help out. I see that you now have offices in seven states and are actually considering expanding further. That's quite a large difference than a small office in San Diego 14 years ago. What's up with that? No, it, it's, it's been a great ride. Um, you know, when you take a look at these cases, you know, we started doing, and we still do, you know, even small cases. You know, people get sued by Citibank or American Express. I mean, those are real cases to individuals. While it's not huge banking cases with, with tens of millions of dollars on the line, I mean, you know, a $5,000, a $3,000 debt, that's real money to, to folks down here. And so we, we observed that happening not just in San Diego, but then as we expanded the practice throughout California, we saw consumers are experiencing the same issues. And so, you know, our business model was developed to uh, to assist those consumers. And, and, you know, once you get that right, it really um, it transfers to the rest of the states in, in the U.S. as well. I mean, every single 
state has consumers that are having the same issues and troubles. So it's kind of a natural progression to be able to expand that way. Uh, you know, while it's, it seems ambitious, and when you look back, uh, <laughs> it's more than just one office. But, but when, you, when you go down to those small communities in, let's say, you know, Lansing, Michigan, where we have an office, they have the same issues, the same abuse stories that they have, you know, where we started in San Diego. I saw on your website that in addition to the work you do and your free consultations for folks, um, you also are put a lot of effort into trying to help educate consumers in terms of what their rights are and kind of give them a basic understanding to get started. Now, the folks on the call tonight, um, would you be kind enough to go over some of those consumer protection law basics that uh, you talk about and write about? Sure. I mean, I, I feel it's our, it's our obligations as attorneys, especially consumer rights advocates, um, you know, we got to educate. You'd be very surprised, uh, even the, some of the judiciary, when you get in front of them, they're not that, that first on some of these consumer-related issues. And if, if the judges can't seem to, to, uh, to figure out their way through this or aren't familiar to, uh, enough with, with what the laws are, I mean, how is the, you know, the every average consumer supposed to figure it out? So, you know, I, I pride myself in spending a lot of time during the week, and every one of our attorneys do. We just spend on the phone. You know, answering questions, uh, you know, general consumer-related issues to help out. And then we do do a lot of presentations as well throughout different states in the country. Um, some of the, the, the key areas that, that we focus on and, and kind of transcend, you know, one is the, is the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. It's a, it's a federal act, um, so it applies, you know, across the board in any state. Um, a lot of states have their own equivalent state act. Um, usually there isn't some type of... Um, preemption effect. It's just some additional rights and remedies, such as California, where we have the uh, the Rosenthal Act here. So, you know, specifically with the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, that that gives um, uh, rules and regulations that protect consumers against unfair um, and deceptive collection practices. Um, generally, it's got to be a third party. So, you know, as an example, um, the Citibank example again, Citibank calling um, a consumer in a state wouldn't generally be covered under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act because they're the original creditor. But, you know, if there's a default or that that uh, that account subsequently transferred to somebody else, like, oh, Midland Funding, Portfolio Recovery Associates, those are two big ones. Now, the, since the third party has the account, um, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is applied. So, um, you know, it's one of a... Uh, one of the uh, the longstanding members and lecturers on the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, Pete Berry in uh, Minnesota, uh, told me, and, and obviously uh, uh, lectures regularly, that really, I mean, it boils down to a couple things. One, the consumer is entitled to being being treated truthfully, fairly, and with some dignity. Um, so, repeated telephone calls, abusive phone calls, deceptive letters, communications with employers or third parties. Um, that's all illegal, and it violates the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and, and consumers don't have to put up with it. And so if something like that's happening, um, generally, uh, it's a good thing to, to reach out to a consumer attorney in your area to figure out what your rights are. Um, some of the remedies being, um, you know, you're up to entitled to $1,000 per case, any actual damages, and, uh, you know, you get a free lawyer. Um, if they prevail, the other side has to pay your attorney's fees. So it's it's a it's a pretty effective enforcement mechanism, so that consumers are treated fairly and and uh, with with dignity in trying to collect these debts. Yeah. So what are some signs of a valid phone call versus a harassing phone call? 
So, I mean, a lot of folks are going, well, you know, I'm just getting phone calls. And then they stop answering their phone because they're sitting there screening their calls because they're afraid to answer their phone because there's some bully on the other end. Or, you know, it's just an, a, a legitimate conversation. So how, what's a good rule of thumb for a consumer to make that judgment? Well, I think the first thing that consumers need to realize is that they really have the power in these cases, okay? Uh, you have the power to to determine how and what frequency and the manner in which any of these communications are going to take place or not. And that's something that, that should be forgotten. So putting aside what, you know, if we were to play certain recordings or, or listen to certain conversations, I think any common person would say, well, that's pretty abusive, foul language, um, threats that they don't, um, not tend to follow through, threats of judgments or wage garnishments when they don't have the ability or present uh, capacity or intent to file a lawsuit, all that stuff uh, would be violations. But I think for your consumer who's just being educated on the, on the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, you got to come back and think about um, the, the underlying principle that, that, that the consumer has the right and the power to um, dictate how the communications are going to take place. So, for example, you know, an innocuous letter could be coming in from a debt collector. We'll use Midland, not to pick on them, but since they're a pretty large actor, you get a, a letter from Midland for a past due Sears bill. Forget what the, the letter says for a moment, just the, just the fact that it's a communication trying to collect on a debt. Um, what's important there is that the consumer can write back after receiving the first letter that, that they request some type of proof, that they want some type of validation of the debt. And depending what jurisdiction you're in, I mean, the courts have defined what, what a responsive document or set of documents would be, but um, the fact is they have that right. So they can, they're required to disclose who the original creditor is, how they arrived at that amount. Um, in addition to that, you know, the consumer can write back and say, I don't, I refuse to pay the, on this account or stop contacting me. At that point, the communication's got to stop. They have every right to say that. So a subsequent letter is uh, demanding to me or a follow-up phone call uh, in an attempt to collect on uh, that account or payment. That's an absolute violation. Um, the same thing with a phone call. The consumer could say, listen, I work nights and weekends, so only call me between certain hours, Monday through Friday. They have every right to demand that, that that's the manner and time frequency that, that uh, a debt collector should be required to contact them. Again, they could say, I don't want to receive telephone calls at all, uh, and, and a debt collector has to respect that. And when they don't, it runs afoul of the act. Um, so, you know, the, the act is, is long and detailed, and, boy, there's a huge body of case law between, you know, defining what can and cannot be done. But I think for, for your average consumer who doesn't really practice in this area and is not a lawyer, the best thing to, to think about is the fact that they can dictate the manner in which um, they're contacted or not. One of the things that you might run into, actually from your perspective or any attorney's perspective that would like to help a consumer, probably is documentation, right? And what's a good way for a consumer to document when things have moved from a casual, you know, hey, it's very important that we talk to you about this debt to harassment and how they can document the fact that they actually instructed the debt collector to no longer call them, or I've taken on an attorney. If you've got any other questions, talk to my attorney. But, you know, it's only over the phone. So how can you prove up 
you know, evidence that you actually, on, let's say, March 17th, issued that warning, that notice, to the debt collector mm -hmm. that that you were going to claim your rights under these debt collection acts. Follow me? Well, I mean, because sure. otherwise it's just he said, she said, right? Well, I, I think you raised some very good points. Um, you know, start with, with with the comment where you're saying he said, she said. I, I don't dispute that. And I'll tell you, I mean, I've done thousands of these cases. And, and I will put, you know, my client, a consumer, uh, against any of these debt collection companies when they are willing to get up on the stand, declare under the penalty of perjury that on a certain date they said something uh, to the debt collector to the effect of, I want you to stop calling. I'm tired of getting this abusive telephone calls. I'll, I'll put my client up against the, uh, the debt collector any day. One, because the standard under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the way the, the case law has been defined, it's the least sophisticated consumer standard, which is great. It's a standard that really um, protects the consumer. There isn't any type of man magical words or documentation uh, that's required. It should be interpreted in, in the light most favorable to the consumer. At the same time, you know, by doing these cases, you 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 can you can feel uh, the sincerity of, of what your clients are telling you, okay? Unlike the debt collectors, they're not making 180 telephone calls per day, five, six days a week for a year. That's a lot of phone calls, okay? If you were to put that person, based on the collection notes and the documents and the records that are going to be produced in the case, um, and put that debt collector on the stand, I've taken their depositions. They have absolutely no recollection as to who they talked to. Them. It's just too much information. But I'll tell you what, you put John Smith on the stand, he knows exactly what happened. He knows exactly where he was and exactly what was said because it was powerful to him and, and, and it left uh, uh, a mark and, and a memory. Um, so, yeah, it's, it could be a he said, she said, and we can talk about in a minute on how to maybe um, keep a little bit of a better evidence and record. But, you know, would I shy away from a he said, she said case? Absolutely not. Uh, it just depends on really the, the veracity of, of my client and, and how they're going to testify on the stand. So I've done a lot of those cases, and, and I'll tell you, with those with those facts, when we say something happened and the debt collectors, you know, denying it, the trial, that's that's what that's what the jury's for. It's not a, a necessarily a judge question. It's a it's a it's a disputed issue of material fact. It's going to go to the jury. So the jury's going to be able to hear our clients testify. Um, and the other witnesses or, you know, the other, um, we call 404B, you know, character evidence where this has happened to many other people. And they get away all of that and then ultimately make a decision. So just because you don't have a great documentation or record of it, um, that doesn't necessarily preclude you from, from, from bringing a legitimate case. It's very interesting you mentioned a jury. Um, in some jurisdictions in Chancery, they don't allow for a jury. So if you were doing one of these claims within a case that was in Chancery that didn't allow for a jury, would you have the same uh, traction, or would you then be kind of like flipping a coin? Well, I, I, you know, one, you're going to get a trier fact. Even when you say you're not, you don't get a jury, you still get a trier fact. So you really do get a jury in your example. You get a jury of one. You get the judge. We saw probably all the discovery motions, if there were some saw the motions for summary judgment, you know, has heard the lawyers on the case for six months or a year, maybe longer, and is there to try and ultimately weigh that those facts and evidence 
um, and arguments. Um, so there is a jury. It's just not your typical um, jury of 12 or how many ever uh, you, you elect to, to use um, that you would in, in what we think normally as a jury a jury trial. But with, with that with said, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act. This is a, 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 an act that was uh, enacted by Congress, you know, signed off by the president back in all around 1978. It's codified in the in the uh, in the United States Code, and so there's federal question subject matter jurisdiction here. So while you know a, a consumer or a plaintiff's lawyer could you know venue this in in the court that you described, you have every right to go to, to federal court, which is what we do regularly. And, you know, under the Seventh Amendment, you have every right, a constitutional right, to a jury trial. So these cases in federal court are tried to a jury. Well, that's good to know. Um, you would mentioned, don't forget that foreclosure is also a debt collection process, and that a lot of the things that you work on to help folks that are dealing with credit cards or college loans or auto loans and stuff like that might also be applied to like a lot of the folks in our audience that are primarily dealing with uh, foreclosure defense and stuff like that. Um, can you speak a little bit about how those concepts can integrate? Sure, and I think broadly, we can talk about you know, later on, different vehicles and mechanisms that protect against abusive collections, foreclosure, and even in the foreclosure context. So really the three areas that you'd want to think about and we can discuss one being the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and we can talk in a moment about how that may or may not apply in a, in a foreclosure or mortgage collection case. We also probably want to talk about later the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, because that is going to come into play when you're dealing with uh, mortgage foreclosures uh, and mortgage debt. I mean, when you boil it down, the, a mortgage is still a debt. Yeah, it's secured by property, but it's collected in the same manner to a certain degree um, as it would an auto loan or a past due Sears bill. It's still an amount, and they want payment. They don't necessarily want to take back the property. They want payment on that account. I mean, ultimately, they might foreclose and try to take possession uh, to recover what they claim their losses are. But, but when you boil it down, it's still an effort to collect. And on the back end of that, we also got to think about um, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Passed a very similar time as the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and that whole consumer legislation back in the late 70s, the Fair Credit Reporting Act comes into play as well because we're talking about a requirement that, that a person's credit report be, be accurately reflected as to what those accounts say they are. And so a lot of times when you're dealing with foreclosure and mortgage-related matters, there's a huge impact on that credit. Uh, consumers entitled to an accurate credit report you know, before the foreclosure and after. So there's some things to be said about that as well that consumers need to be aware of. That's great to talk about again. Uh, we had a couple of really wonderful guests on the show several weeks back that are specialists in credit reporting and credit damage reporting and actually act as expert witnesses in court cases all across the country. Uh, one of the areas where attorneys sometimes miss is that credit damage is a real cause of action. And could you talk about that with respect to settling up on all of the claims that precipitate from FDCPA or TCPA? With the Fair Credit Reporting Act, some of the cutting issues that we've seen right now, uh, there's a couple. One, I think the one that's probably going to be heard in various different jurisdictions and states uh, following California is the, uh, the, the, the Coker decision. 
uh, that came out a couple months ago, California Supreme Court. Uh, C-O-C-K-E-R. I can pull up through the sentences, but that'll, uh, that should get you on the right spot. Now, that, that decision is, is important because it, it implicates the, uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, credit reporting, and in California, we're, we're one of the only jurisdictions who has a state uh, credit reporting statute um, that isn't entirely preempted. There's still one section that survives. Uh, anybody writing it down, it's this California Civil Code 1785.26. That, that section survived, uh, was not preempted by the, the federal act. Uh, but in the Coker decision, what we're dealing with here is is a short sale of a property. So, you know, we have a lot of different jurisdictions across the the, the country, and so you get the two two competing deficiency and anti deficiency states. So, meaning if you have a, a purchase money uh, mortgage, so you took out loans, could be the first and a second, you know, what happened in the you know 2008 and before, where you'd have you know a lender two, maybe sometimes the same one who would take a first out at 80%, and then they give you a second mortgage at 20%. Uh, but you'd use it to buy your house. And so you really have to come out of pocket for almost nothing, and people were buying houses. And we all know what, what the result of that was. But notwithstanding, uh, the consumer defaults, as long as it's purchased money, it wasn't like a, an equity line or they later refinanced the house. Um, and there's a default and a foreclosure um, in California and the non uh, anti-deficiency states, there's no recourse um, unless you go through a different judicial process. There's no recourse for the balance that might be due. Um, and so the the Coker case went up where there was a little bit of a, uh, a disparity in the law and what would you do with a short sale? Is that really due even though uh, there was a, a foreclosure? And, uh, I guess it would be a short sale in that case. Um, and so there was some ambiguity, but the, the California Supreme Court came out and said, listen, the law is pretty clear on these anti-deficiency statutes. It's not owed, and it's really never been owed. It's not like we're making new law here. We're just clarifying what, what's always been. And so in the context of uh, these short sales, was really the, the, the impact on the consumer's credit report because the majority of banks and lenders were reporting this, this second that was subject to the, uh, the short sale as a charged-off balance. And this isn't, you know, like a Home Depot card for a couple thousand dollars. These are large amounts, tens of thousands, sometimes $100,000 that were charged off um, on a consumer's credit, which had a a very significant impact. Uh, And so there's been some some cases, and there will be some more in California that follow that decision to correct and get damages um, for these consumers who've been affected. And I think you'll see there'll probably be a trend in some other cases and some other states that will probably look to this decision and interpretation of their laws where it will have the same effect. Now, on the homeowner side, we remember uh, a lot of the stories that have been going on from 2004 all the way up through the collapse in 08, all the way to today, that there was some kind of strategy, a.k.a. the big short, the movie, to set everybody up for failure um, on their mortgages, to over-inflate the investment and profits that the investment banks could get out of it by selling short on them on themselves. But I think that there was also some conversation, but it isn't quite as open or popular on the same area with regard to credit cards and other kinds of consumer loans or unsecured consumer loans 
where they overextend credit to people knowing that they're going to get them to fail and that they can come back and close down on them. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. I, I can I can comment um, from my view of representing thousands of, of individual consumers who were sued um, with defaulted credit card debt. I mean, we saw a height of it going into 2009, 2010, um, where there were just thousands of cases being dumped on the court's docket um, for varying amounts, and you know, not uh, there were quite a few that were very significant amounts. Um, and so, you know, what the motivation behind extending this credit? I mean, obviously, there was, in my view, a lot of free money at the time. It was easy uh, when a consumer was overextended on unsecured debt, i.e. a credit card or that car maybe that they weren't able to pay, where they could tap into that piggy bank, you know, called their house, because these lenders were easily, with just a stroke of a pen, um, writing um, equity lines or refinancing the houses and having money taken out because everyone was banking on the appreciation of the of the real estate values. And when that crashed, I mean, we all know what happened. Um, and the, the net effect of that was a lot of credit card defaults as well. And so consumers were getting sued. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, because we were on the front lines of it, uh, starting in San Diego, I would look at every single filing every week that was filed within the county on who was being sued, uh, under what theories, and we studied those things. We took that across the rest of the state, pulled the majority of the, the most populous counties in the state, and, and took data. And, and I'll tell you, it was in excess of 95% of consumers would default. To me, that was shocking. It was shocking and, and somewhat of a wake-up call. And, and we, we had meetings in, in our office with the partners. We said, why is this happening? Why are 95% of these people defaulting? And, and we came up with a couple different theories. Well, maybe they weren't being served properly. Maybe there's false affidavits that they're actually being served. Maybe uh, they, they just the consumer didn't know what to do. Maybe they couldn't find any representation. And so we started sending letters out to everybody who would have a lawsuit filed against them, give them notice that they're, they're, they're one, they were sued, don't default. And two, there was organizations, legal aid, even our law firm was doing a lot of these cases you know, somewhat for free um, just so they could have a defense. And so what was interesting when we started taking a lot of these cases – um, and actually litigating them, fighting them, I would I probably tried about at least 50 of these cases from you know $1,000 up to $100,000 on unsecured credit card debt. We were finding that when a consumer filed an answer, responded, and, and fought these things, the majority of them could be greatly reduced, or a lot of times they just dismissed the case because they knew they could go back to that pool of excess of 95% of consumers who would just default. And yeah, they'd have to, they'd have to dock it and invest this, this filing fee. But they knew, and the, these credit card companies and banks knew that eventually the economy would come back. People would have jobs again. The money would be more free flowing. And as long as they had this judgment that they could park in California, you could park it for 10 years, renew it for another 10 after that. And they knew that if they parked it against this consumer, uh, maybe their home, that one day they're going to have to apply for some type of line of credit or a car. They'd want something, and they'd have to settle up. So the, the credit card companies, in my view, viewed these as these defaulted credit card agreements and accounts really as an investment. They'd have to sit on for a few years, but once you have a default in place, 
it's almost impossible after a period of time for a lawyer to come back and have that set aside and to really give you your day in court. So that, that, that was our view from the inside um, of, uh, of really what caused and, and some of the motivation that we, that we believe was behind some of these credit card defaults and lawsuits. So the advice there is everybody should be proactive, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It being, it, it's, it's a difficult position to be in. And I talk to consumers every single day. It's not that it's, it's very rare for a consumer to come into our office um, with, with, the, with the motivation that, that they intentionally ran up credit card debt, other debt, automobile, home loan debt, with the intention not to pay. That's not the motivation. It's just sometimes life happens. Family member gets sick. They got medical issues. They got kids, you know, who thought we're going to get a job out of college and now back home. Um, they lost their job. Their significant other might have lost their job. So life happens. And this, this razor thin, uh, you know, balance of keeping the finances in check sometimes goes awry. Uh, and so, you know, it, it does happen. And it's not that they're, they're intentionally doing that. Um, but when it happens, um, I find that, you know, consumers are embarrassed. Um, not not just embarrassed, but sometimes they go a step further and just want to, would rather disregard those collection letters. Or if the summons and complaint shows up, maybe just like throw it under the mattress and maybe it'll go away. But the reality is there are organizations out there, law firms like, our, like ours, who are there to help and you'd rather be on the front end trying to defend these things then wait until there's a judgment and years later when, when life will inevitably turn around and now you got to pay up um, with really not too much leverage to be able to negotiate or settle the thing. So can FDCPA and uh, TCPA help folks in foreclosure cases directly or indirectly? I, I would view it more as indirectly. Okay, A foreclosure may or may not happen and there, there are defenders to that. So it, there's really two issues there. One, the view of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, okay? And I talked about earlier, uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, you know, protects consumers uh, against abuse of debt collection by a debt collector and how that statute defines a debt collector. And generally, that's an individual or organization who collects defaulted debt on a regular basis. So when you have Citibank uh, collecting on their own debt internally in, in a foreclosure case, generally it doesn't apply. Where We've seen some inroads, and the majority of the case law doesn't go the consumer's way, but there are some jurisdictions that we're starting to get some traction, is that when, as an example, HSBC, they had a bunch of mortgage debt. Well, they got out of that business, so they sold those portfolios to Citibank, Chase. They spread it around. Well, a lot of those accounts, uh, you know, I think there's one package that, and I think it was in Chicago, there's a case, it's about... $3 billion of, of consumer defaulted debt in this portfolio. But the courts held that even though there was a large majority of that as being defaulted debt, it still didn't qualify the third-party recipient, in that case Citibank, to qualify as a debt collector. So the other issue is well, perhaps maybe a servicer. A servicer could be qualified as, as a, as a third-party debt collector. The law in a lot of these jurisdictions that we practice in is, is still developing. You'll see if you're in the situation where you have a defaulted um, mortgage and it goes to a servicer, they're putting the disclosures that would lead you to believe that they think they're covered by the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. There'll be disclosures that they are, in fact, a debt collector, that any information used will be used for that purpose in debt collection. 
Um, those are required language mandated by the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. And so, you know, we have filed lawsuits, and a lot of our other colleagues have, on violations of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act in that arena with mixed results. So some courts are saying servicers are covered by the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act in the, in the default and mortgage context, and some are saying they're not. But I think but, consumers need to remember is that assuming that there is coverage under the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act, let's say in the context of a, of a defaulted mortgage, that doesn't mean that the foreclosure goes away. This is a parallel track. This is a parallel action. The consumer, if right, is entitled to their own remedies under the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act, but this in no way abrogates the, uh, uh, the foreclosure action. So while they might receive some award or compensation um, for the separate action, um, it doesn't have a direct effect of the, uh, on the foreclosure, but it does add some leverage. You know, they're obviously trying to take some action to enforce their rights, and reciprocally, uh, the consumer um, it tries to enforce their rights, and sometimes it gets some leverage so maybe there can be a compromise. I'm not saying it might be one for one, but it definitely adds some leverage um, in the consumer's favor. So, Josh, would, that be, would, a, would a consumer bring that as a separate action? Or would they put that in the same court case as the foreclosure as a motion? I, I guess the answer is it depends, right? Any good lawyer, you know, can always defer a question by going, well, it depends, because there's always a situation where it might vary. Um, and that sometimes comes down to a little bit of strategy, depending on that particular case. Does it make sense to put that that, that claim as a counterclaim and litigate that way in a foreclosure case? Or does it make uh, sense to go to a different court and start over? Most of the time, you're not going to see these foreclosure cases being brought in federal court. They're going to be brought in the state court. That's where the jurisdiction is. There's no federal jurisdiction for a foreclosure case generally. But a fair debt case is going to be in the, in the, in the federal courts. Different rules, different set of judges, uh, different case law. And so generally our practice is the majority of the time we're going to bring that as a separate action and keep the foreclosure action um, separate and apart. So if the uh, consumer and their attorney felt that uh, part of the reason for the alleged default that started into the foreclosure case was a result of violations of FDCPA and TCPA, you might even be able to ask the federal court judge to put in a temporary injunction to slow down or stop the state foreclosure case until that pending action is done, right? I've seen similar requests being done. I mean, there's some cases that working on some of our attorneys that are licensed in Nevada where some of those some of those things are happening, um, where the federal courts are getting involved in some of the uh, the issues of mortgage fraud and standing. And so there is an interplay with some of the uh, foreclosure actions that are going through the courts at the same time um, in, in the state courts. So it's possible. Um, but again, you know, it's the same the same remedies would probably apply in the, in the state action. If it's an injunction, you're you're looking for even uh, based on the, the federal action somehow. You can still go into that state court and ask for similar relief. Uh, so the consumer still has the, the ability there with one action or, you know, or parallel I'm glad you mentioned standing. I saw from your uh, dossier that uh, you had several cases where you won even at a class action on uh, the challenges of standing. And that seems to be a big issue for consumers and homeowners alike. Not that homeowners are not consumers, but it's a subset. And what can you do when it comes to challenging 
whether or not the people who are alleging to be the plaintiffs actually have a right to be the plaintiffs. Well, I mean, an issue of standing is, is fundamental, right? I mean, a person has to have, or a company has to have the right to make the claims that, that they're claiming to take whatever action and remedies that they're, they're trying to obtain. They have to have a right to bring that to action. Um, they have to be agreed. So, you know, that's a fundamental principle they teach in law school that lawyers uh, often look over. Um, and I think it was, it was heightened uh, at the, the last financial crisis we had in the late 2008-2009. Standing became a big issue. Uh, And we would see it, um, first we saw it in a lot of these these small collection actions um, where you have uh, a debt, even if it's just a portfolio of debt that wasn't securitized, which we can talk about in a minute, uh, it was just individual accounts that were sold off to third parties, such as Midland or Portfolio Recovery Associates. They buy these debts in bulk, millions of dollars uh, at a time. Uh, and the question was, when they filed lawsuits, again, they were hoping that consumers would just default. Uh, because there's a fundamental question to be asked. By portfolio recovery, bringing that action, do they actually have the proper standing? Were they the contracting party? Well, of course not. You know, do they have the rights under the contract to enforce those the, the original contract? Do they have the documentation to show that they're in privity or uh, they're in the proper chain, that party A gave it to party B, gave it to uh, a Midland or a portfolio, the end user who filed the lawsuit? These are all fundamental questions that had to be asked. And so, and the same thing would relate to a, a mortgage case. These same fundamental principles of standing had to be um, uh, sorted through. So in the mortgage context, I mean, most of the listeners you know, understand by watching the movies and reading the books and newspapers, these mortgages were, were securitized. They were split apart and put into different trusts. And so there were fundamental questions and still are about who has the right to bring the action. Are they really a holder in due course? Do they have this privity? Is it all there? Are all the documents there? Um, and so, you know, trying a lot of these cases, a lot of these cases, it's 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 important when you're when you're put in front of the court to uh, to remind the court that the same rules of evidence apply. Okay, I mean this isn't uh, you know a Microsoft patent case where we're talking about fifty hundred million dollars. That's it's just as important as that case when you're dealing with a foreclosure case, someone's home a deficiency, or a defaulted city card uh, for five thousand dollars. The same fundamental principles. Of, of the case law and the evidence code applies. And those have to be applied uniformly. And so the party bringing the action, be it the bank on the foreclosure side or a credit card company or a third-party debt buyer, they still have to meet those standards. And so when we go through our cases in the discovery process and preparing for trial and defending these, these cases, we line it up. You know, where is the chain of, of title, essentially? Where did it start and where did it end? And is there documentation or is there going to be evidence presented to show that it's transferred to the right parties down the, down the, uh, the, the course of, of its life? Uh, and I've seen where it's been, you know, transferred at least six times. And so, you know, if the rules of evidence apply, well, they have to have people to come in here with knowledge to be able to establish that the account is what it was all the way through this, this, the course of its life. And so, 
it's important to educate the trier of fact, be it a jury or, or a judge, that these fundamental principles apply. Yeah, there might have been a default, um, but, but but the law is still the law, and that's their burden to be able to prove the standing issues and the proper chance title, be it in a foreclosure or, or a, a credit card case. A frequent argument is people argue about the debt and, and they argue about standing and everything, but uh, I think the proper, I think you and I talked about this earlier, and that is, you're not saying, Your Honor, there's no debt. You're saying, Your Honor, I'm certain there's a debt to somebody somewhere, but I don't think this is the guy. <laughs> no, I, I, I use that a lot in my in my closing because there is this presumption, and typically on these credit card cases it gets tried to a judge, so a jury of one, essentially, um, where in the, you can't help but in the back of their mind they're thinking, you know, this person probably owes this money, right? I mean, I'm not standing up there arguing that's an identity theft case. And this is a real case. There's a reason why there was a default, but there was a default. And so, um, you know, you have to educate the judge um, that, uh, that the fundamental issue of standing applies just not in this case, but if it's applied wrong, it subjects the consumer to a series of lawsuits. Because if, if Party B, who says they have a right to sue, gets a judgment, when in fact it was really Party C who had it, there's nothing to stop that Party C from filing separate case. And so that's something I try to emphasize is that is that the right party has to be suing the right party because my, my client's entitled to one, a, a fair trial and with all the evidence there, but to have some type of finality. If we win or lose, that should be the final end of it. And if there is no standing, then the, mul- the, the additional litigation could happen to subject my client to, to be sued you know, again. Yeah, but uh, as we talked about before, discovery seems to be a really – sticky wicket when it comes to uh, high-dollar deals like mortgage foreclosures. Um, banks representing a trust come in and say, oh, we are exempt because of federal rules that banks have all this, the Bank Secrecy Act, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you find out that the servicing company is a subsidiary of the bank. And up, up to and including part of 2010, all the subsidiaries were covered. After 2010, Dodd-Frank kicked in and said subsidiaries are their own individual entities, right? And uh, they're no longer protected by the umbrella of the parent. But now they're going back. I saw a case from Illinois in 2015, uh, June or July, um, that I was reviewing earlier today, where they said, oh, you know, Dodd-Frank doesn't count because this deal was consummated before that happened and the law's not retroactive. And so... There's a lot of confusion over that, too. How do you get discovery when they start saying bank secrecy, company records, uh, and all the other excuses that they throw at you? Sure. I mean, being a, being a consumer rights law firm, and, and be it that this, this is what we do, you know, we just don't have one case. I mean, we have, I don't know, I think about 1,500 active cases across the country. Um, so... You know, it's not all or won or lost in one case. So we get to see the different views from the judiciary and the different rules applied or not um, across a lot of different states. So we have that luxury. Um, And so, you know, the answer is that it it really depends. It depends on what jurisdiction you're in. And really, essentially, it depends on who's going to decide that. Um, The rules, like you said, um, there's some rigidity to it, but there are a lot of discretion as well. So uh, making the same argument in two different courts 
very well may uh, lead to two different decisions, both possibly being uh, discretionary and help, upheld by a appellate court appeal later. So I think the important part is that you got to be vigilant. You've know, you got to push for these documents. Ultimately, maybe the court you know, gives it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, um, but you've got to ask for it. You've got to think about putting that puzzle together, uh, even though it's their burden to prove these, these cases. But how are they going to be able to put that together? What, what evidentiary roadblocks are they going to have to be able to introduce this evidence, and what are they missing? And think through those issues and you know, ask for it. And bring it to the court's attention that, again, standing as an example, standing's fundamental. You know, we have every right to be able to see these documents before we show up on the day of trial to be able to test their veracity, kick the tires a little bit, if you will. Um, and so it's an unfair surprise if they're going to bring that in at the last minute. Um, so we're, we've asked for the documents, we've asked for witnesses to testify, and if they can't produce those or produce those witnesses, then they should be precluded uh, later at trial. Um, and so it's something that, that the lawyers, like, like us and the consumer, if they're doing a case themselves, has to be very vigilant in trying to obtain those documents. So, you know, it's, it's you know, they, this, this area of law with that, that gets interpreted under the Dodd-Frank Act, I mean, it's, that, that act isn't even completely drafted, okay? It's still in, in its infancy. You know, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has only been around for a few years. I mean, this, this is an organization with, with sweeping powers, um, and so... You know, the, the ink's not dry on this stuff yet. This is still a developing area of law, and so I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. By, by staying up on the news or, you know, if you're a lawyer or interested in, in, in the legal side of things, cases that come out, case developments, uh, because it's, it's still, uh, still developing. So, on your long view, what, do you feel that the harmonization of law and jurisprudence across America, coast to coast, is going to happen easily, or is this going to be like uh, equal rights for all kids of all colors to go to school? I mean, how, how hard are different local jurisdictions going to fight some of these things? I, I don't think that we're going to have uh, some type of harmonization of the law, at least across the United States, at least in my, in my lifetime. I, I wouldn't see it that way. I've practiced um, cases and you know, from New York to California, and, and there are different laws in each jurisdiction, um, procedural laws that, that are different. Um, I think are we trying to uh, slowly get to the, the area where we're trying to have some type of uniformity? And perhaps, and if you take a look at, at the law school setting, I mean, every state has their own separate law schools and, and bar exams, but now you're seeing a push where they have this uniform bar exam, which should apply to, you know, 13 states now. And there's an argument to be said that all the states should start going to this, where there is some type of uniformity of law. You know, will we see the same move um, by the state legislatures? I don't know. I, I don't think so. Um, it's because, you know, Nevada feels that they have different issues that are pressing than, let's say, Louisiana would. You know, and all politics there, you know, are, are, are local. So they pass legislation and rules that really have a, a local impact. And so, you know, absent the federal government coming in legislating in a particular area, I think you're still going to see, you know, disparity in, in law and procedure varying by state. Well, I don't want to beat up the question, but we do have a concept here in America that everybody is equal. That is a general concept. Isn't that right? So if everybody in America is equal and has equal rights to protection, to property, to not uh, being arrested without a warrant, et cetera, 
shouldn't property rights and financial rights be included in that concept of equal rights for all American citizens? I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I think there's different levels of, uh, of these rights. I mean, obviously, we're all bound by the you know, United States Constitution. You know, when the Supreme Court comes out on a ruling on property rights, or, boy, it's a Fourth Amendment right. Um, that applies to everybody. The, the federal government, the states, down to the, you know, local municipalities. Um, but everything isn't, isn't litigated and decided by, by one court, the Supreme Court. And there, there are different issues that are litigated every day uh, in state courts, even in district courts, up to the circuit courts. And where an interpretation of a law or um, something like that uh, can be interpreted differently in, in two different jurisdictions. And so I think the fundamental principles are the same, but, but I'll tell you, I mean, they don't have all those, those case books for nothing. I mean, there, there's a lot of interpretation to be had, um, and, you know, there could be a, a differing opinion on, on what the ultimate result is. Before we break for questions, uh, talk a little bit about um, the myths versus realities of class actions. Because a lot of people are really confused about that. I was confused until I spoke with you. And uh, I thought that you already had to get out there and find a million people that were harmed before you could start one. That's just one example. Go ahead. I'm sure. I, I appreciate it. Um, look, I mean, we've, we still do small individual cases. Um, a lot of them we'll take for, for free. Um, because it's the right thing to do. And I'll tell you, if it wasn't our lawyers uh, or consumer rights lawyers who take those cases and represent those individual consumers, they wouldn't get representation. And so you take, you know, what would happen to one person um, and you multiply it against the, the reach that these banks and debt collection companies have across the, the tens of millions of people that they reach uh, across the country. Uh, it, 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 and you see that there's, there's some real damage. Okay. And so, as an example, um, the case went up to the Supreme Court, uh, AT&T versus Conception. There, in that case, the consumers were being damaged by just small amounts of money. So let me give you an example. If, if AT&T was stealing, and, and they, let's say for a moment in the hypothetical that they would admit to stealing, you know, $5 a month from your client. Three months, six months later, you got $60. I mean, is that enough for a consumer to go and engage a lawyer? I mean, we all know that sometimes lawyers take these cases on contingency. Let's say that whatever was recovered, they would get a third of that. So that's $60. They're going to invest their time and energy and risk for $20. Well, these large companies know that that's not going to take place. Okay, and that's why they have these arbitration agreements. And, you know, putting aside the issue of arbitration for a moment, that's really the function of, of a class action, to balance that power of the consumer against these larger institutional organizations who have more money and more influence than, than a group of consumers, even a small group of consumers. And so by taking that stand and filing a, a case that has the implication of tens of millions of dollars, you think they're going to lift it. Okay? And while at the end of the day, you know, it seems like the, the news media you know, would like to give uh, yeah. the Especially the banks would like to give class actions with that name because everybody gets you know their five or ten dollars back. The reality is, if those cases weren't brought and those cases were not participated in, they these organizations would get away with impunity by stealing small amounts of money. So that's that's really the the uh, the power behind and uh, thought process behind bringing a class action. 
That's fantastic, Josh. Thank you. Um, so, are you ready to take some questions from our listeners? Sure. All righty. Uh, let's take a short two-minute break and let everybody gather their thoughts and refresh themselves. St. Patrick's Day. We won't be looking over your shoulder. And uh, we'll be right back with the question and answer portion of our show here on the Gallant Goose and Friends with our guest, consumer protection and class action attorney and lecturer, Josh Schweigert. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com. Program number 139335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, We'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. Thank you all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Welcome back, everybody, to the Gallant Goose and Friends. If you're just tuning in, we're here with our guest, consumer protection, class action attorney, and lecturer, Josh Swigert. As a reminder to our callers, to ask a question, please press star 8 on your telephone to raise your hand and be placed into the queue. When you're unmuted, please say your name where you're calling from, and your question. If you have a noisy background, you can always mute yourself after asking your question by pressing star six on your phone. For those of you out there who are just on the chat board, uh, please go ahead and type in your question, and I will try to read that in the order in which we receive them. All right, everybody, uh, let's move. Are you with me, Josh? I'm here. Okay, uh, our first question is from... East North Carolina. I didn't know that was a state. I thought it was just North Carolina. <laughs> it's, it's North. 
Hey, Greg. Hi, you're on the phone with Josh. You got a question. Hello, Josh. How are you? And thank you so much for your uh, show. It's an excellent show. It's one of the best. Thanks. Um, Had a question. Um, I have another one. It's it's typed in that Greg can handle later. But what is your uh, possibilities of of maybe forming uh, class actions against Fannie Mae uh, pre-2008 for mortgages that were, you know, bought by them, but they never disclosed it? So thousands, probably millions of homeowners had controversies um, but didn't know who the lender was because it was Fannie Mae concealed. Yeah, so I mean, I, to, to me, it would be you know, and, and these cases start small. We don't, you know, necessarily go out and say, "Look, look at this, look at this huge problem we discovered." Uh, usually, it starts small. So, your example: if someone comes in and goes, "Listen, I, I didn't get the full disclosures back in this period of time." Um, that, that's how these cases start. I mean, they're 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 small in nature and they affect one person. We have a bigger view. We say, "Listen, if this happened to, to one person, this is Fannie Mae." I mean, hundreds of thousands of loans or more across the country. So maybe this is happening um, a little uh, a little broader. So some of the analysis, just to kind of let you in and and, and understand what some of the, the legal um, analysis is that we go through for a class action. One is that, you know, do we have some type of um, cause of action? You know, is there some type of violation of some law or statute? Um, you know, common law being fraud or some statute, maybe you know, as an example like RESPA. Uh, is there is there some cause of action we can bring? And after that, you have to take a look at a little bit deeper. Um, you have to say, well, if we're going to bring this 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 claim and we're going to have tens of thousands, maybe millions of people that might be affected, is the court going to look at this and is it going to satisfy the the federal rules um, in in bringing a class action dictated by Rule 23 and and all the case law that's come down in the circuits and Supreme Court. So is everybody going to have common issues of fact and common issues of proof? So that if we had to try this thing, we're going to be able to try this, this case in a very efficient manner um, and be able to manage these, these cases. Um, or, on, on, conversely, are we going to have to deal with 100,000 different individual trials um, that we're going to have to, to do? And is everybody going to be damaged and affected differently? Um, and so your example, not knowing, you know, all the facts, I haven't looked into that. That would be the analysis that we'd have to look through. And so, you know, to, to further that discussion a little bit, you know, a class action, I mean, depending on what court you're in, I mean, that could be as, as few as 40 people. It could be as big as what I've had them and, you know, uh, tens of millions of people. Um, but 40 people would, would would satisfy the numerosity in many jurisdictions. Sometimes I've seen some case law with even less. So in your example... Um, let's say we took it in in North Carolina, uh, because the the different foreclosure you know laws and rules might vary a little bit differently there. The procedures on how to do a foreclosure um, is, is I'm absolutely certain it's different than what it is in California. Every state's going to have a little bit of a different procedure. So could it be looked at that in a smaller on a smaller scale? Maybe it just affects North Dakota, um, North Carolina, um, and so a class potentially could be brought. Uh, uh, you know, on, on in, in that um, scope, um, as far as like those exact facts, I, I haven't seen uh, enough um, on Fannie Mae um, on the foreclosure issue. Although, I, and I'll tell you on a related note, um, we did bring a, a very large class action against Sally Mae, and it had to deal with um, collections on um, these cases that were in default and going into foreclosure. And what happened in that case, it wasn't directly about the foreclosure of the 
um, of the homes, but it had to deal with how they were collecting. And we didn't get a chance to talk about it before, but it, it dealt with the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And the class action that we were part of brought um, had to deal with those robocalls, something that's been a hot-button issue with the FCC and Congress. Um, and they were calling people tens, hundreds of times in an attempt to, to collect on these accounts. And a lot of the things that, that they were doing there, um, calling without permission or after uh, permission was revoked, was a subject to a class action. That didn't directly affect um, the mortgage-related matter, but it kind of just shows you that you know they're not necessarily immune from the from the class action vehicle, even though they're somewhat underwritten by you know by the federal government. Um, not to interrupt, but uh, isn't there an allegation or, or, or a, a presumption? that uh, Fannie and Freddie and other government franchised organizations like that because of special exemptions are exempt from being under attack? Well, I, I think it, it's a question as to what they're exempted from, okay? So, you know, you, you, you pick any area of law that has some type of statutory construction behind it. Um, there's, you'll see that there's a lot of regulation. So, you know, you got federal regulation, um, that regulates any type of industry. I mean, let's take, for example, the banks that we're talking about. You have the National Bank Act. It just depends on how that legislation was passed through Congress um, and interpreted later to have some type of preemptory effect. So the example we're giving is let's talk about the National Bank Act for a moment. So after that was passed, um, as long as the banks are part of this national association, they were regulated by the United States Code and the CFRs that followed. Um, so as an example, California then couldn't, in, in, except in certain limited scopes, um, legislate and, and require additional um, regulation on those banks. So in, in that particular type of situation, they could ask that there was some type of preemption, and so they only had to follow the National Act instead of each 50 individual states' regulations. Um, but, I mean, it, it's a really complex analysis. I'll give you two examples. We talked just briefly about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. That has a preemptory effect in the majority of states, with the exception of a subsection of California statute, that the federal government occupies the field when it comes to credit reporting. But, you know, a couple uh, sections later in the United States Code, where you have the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, very similar laws, they have a national effect. Uh, if, you, if you fall into their, into their net, you've got to follow it as a debt collector. But it's been interpreted that the, that, that set of laws doesn't have a preemptory effect. So California set up their own Fair Debt Collection Practices Act um, rules, the Rosenthal Act. And so that debt collectors, when they engage in collection activity in California, have to follow both sets of rules. And so depending on what area, uh, what statute, you know, how it was passed um, and interpreted, there could be a preemptory effect or perhaps not. Does that answer your question, North Carolina? Um, yeah, except it's pre-2008, before they were uh, put into the conservatorship, when they were a private corporation, so then they would not be um, preempted, correct? It's it preempted by, I'm, I'm a little unclear, preempted by which... which I'm sorry, I have to ask the wrong question. Um, before 2008, September in 2008, when they were taken into conservatorship, uh, they were just a typical company like any other company. They were, you know, publicly offered, privately owned, whatever. Um, they weren't under the uh, species of the federal government. Um, and even now, they're still not. Um, they're still, you know, quasi-government. Quasi 
but before 2008, um, they wouldn't have those same exemptions because they were not part of the conservatorship then. I, I don't disagree with that statement. I, I, I have yet to bring a case against one of these quasi-federal uh, agencies, and Fannie Mae, Sally Mae, especially back in that time frame, where they were able to, to say, raise the defense that there was some type of uh, protection because they were, you know, this quasi-related um, government entity. The, the problem being, uh, you know, in every jurisdiction, even when you're dealing with some of these federal statutes, I mean, there is, you know, what they call a statute of limitations. So after a period of time, you know, if those claims aren't brought, um, you, you kind of lose them forever. So well, what about what about tolling, though? Because if you never knew that Fannie Mae was involved with the transaction until eight years later, there's no way you would have known. For example, if you didn't know that in 2007 Fannie Mae purchased your loan, and you don't find out until 2016, you know, the statute of limitations is tolled, isn't it? Right. You, so were, exactly. you were denied to discovery. Well, that, that's right. That's a question. The, the easy answer is right. It depends. So, I mean, there's there's always two sides of the argument, depending on how the case law comes out and what the judge decides. So that's that's the argument. Saying, listen, I didn't know I had these this 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 entity was there. I didn't even know they were present to be able to sue them. And so that would be, you know, we have all laws when you're going to go through law school and take the bar exam. They go, look, here's the rule, but you know, these are the different exceptions. So yeah, the rule would be, look, you have to bring a case within a prescribed period of time, be it four years, six years, and who knows, it depends on the jurisdiction. And when you're outside that, you got to come in and look for an exception. One of those available exceptions would be, you know, like a late discovery rule. And I think you have a you have a, a well-found, um, thoughtful argument for that. You're saying, look, it wasn't disclosed to me. How was I supposed to know I had these rights and I was going to bring it if, if this was never disclosed to me? Um, so, therefore, the statute of limitations should, should therefore be told, and I have my right to bring that action. I think that's it. It's a well-thought-out argument, and that's the right one to present to the court, how it comes out. Um, I don't know. I've seen cases going both ways. Um, you know, we have a case in the Ninth Circuit right now, um, the Lions case, where it's really that issue as well. We're saying, listen, our client didn't know she had those rights to be able to even bring this fair debt case. It's not fair for the defendant to hide that information and then wait for the statute of limitations to run. Um, and so the consumer will never have uh, the opportunity to really take advantage of what their rights were. But, you know, even in today's, after all the case law, we have the case in front of the Ninth Circuit that deals with that issue. It's not a settled issue, and that's just the Ninth Circuit. And so it can be interpreted differently in Texas and the Fifth Circuit, you know, the East Circuit in Minnesota. So that's definitely the argument to present. What the outcome is, definitely fact-determinative, and then whatever the case law is for that jurisdiction. All righty. Does that take care of you, North Carolina? I just had one quick little question. What if it's compounded basically by a TILA rescission? Uh, if you did a TILA, if you invoked TILA in 2007, but you never noticed Fannie Mae because you didn't know Fannie Mae was involved, and they never complied with the TILA rescission, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just not right. I mean, you know, you, you were trying to do the right thing, and, you know, you did the Taylor rescission notice, but it never went to anybody because you didn't know Fannie was involved, or you would have obviously noticed Fannie. Right. And, and, and again, it's, it really isn't a, a cut-and-dried answer for that. I mean, I think you'd have to articulate that to the court as to why it is that you couldn't give the proper notice. Um, you know, I mean, there really isn't a, a, a cut-and-dried answer on that. I think the way you're thinking about it and identifying that, I think, is 
that's the right way to do it. And I'll tell you, and in arguing some of these cases that have to deal with you know, some of the delayed discovery, um, even dealing on the other side where you have a, a consumer who defaulted, had their rights concluded. Oh, yeah, I never defaulted, by the way. There was never a default. Yeah, so, I mean, in, in those cases, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, the function of time, um, when a consumer tries to assert their rights, the longer the time, the, the less likely the courts uh, statistically are going to want to give you relief. So, you know, if that, if that time frame is, is ever expanded in this discovery, that, that function of time does cut against the consumer. You know, it's not, again, not a bright line rule, but, but you know, we can take it out to its natural uh, uh, conclusion, you know, if you waited 20 years. Is the court more likely to do that if it was just maybe one, one year outside the statute of limitations? So that definitely, in my view, um, is, is a function uh, of some of the determination. So obviously, as soon as it's discovered, you know, you want to act on those on, on that information, those rights uh, uh, immediately. I mean, I've seen courts react positively when you come up with this, with this, this day of discovery where you find this, this actor who you didn't know was there and probably should have been brought into a case, and you act immediately. And it's the next week um, uh, instead of, like, another six months or a year. That usually is is viewed by the court in a much more positive light. Um, if you if you don't mind me throwing two cents in here, guys, um, when it comes to giving notice, um, there's a well established maxim of law that notice to agent is notice to principal. Notice to principal, notice to agent, has also reinforced in the Uniform Commercial Code, and then also reinforced in the Dodd Frank Act, so that. Any consumer that is dealing with a hidden creditor because of all of the securitization and crazy stuff that Wall Street does with all the paperwork that we don't have any idea, that they've hidden it so well from us to make it almost impossible to find the true creditor on a case that if you just notice the attorney or any of the people in the food chain, it is effective as to all parties. And then if you find out that Fannie or Freddie was involved, you can send them a little reminder and say, by the way, back on this day three years ago, I executed this act, and I just found out that you were involved. And I don't know if your underlings or associates ever told you, but that's where we're at. And that way you can also uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, you know, stay proactive in the process you're not saying, I am now sending this to you for the first time. You're saying, no, I executed this. You were supposed to get a copy. You didn't. I'm sorry that your underlings are idiots, but <laughs> there you go. You know, Greg, you're not an attorney, but you say some really smart stuff. I think that's well, an excellent yeah. idea. Right, I think I'm going to follow you up on it. Unless it, an attorney wants to take it on. Oh, I'd like to have Josh tell me if he thinks I'm full of baloney. <laughs> no, if you are bring on the bread. We got a sandwich going on here. No, I, th I think it's a great idea. You know, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I, you know, we talked to earlier in the show. We're like, look, what if you don't have any documentation? Does that preclude you from court? No, it doesn't. Uh, but I'll tell you what. You know, you show up when you have, you know, a certified letter return receipt. You sent multiple faxes. You got this huge, you know. Um, correspondence chain. I mean, it just adds more veracity to, to the consumer's argument. So, obviously, better documentation, better, more reminder notes makes it look more uh, outrageous 
um, when you finally get your day in court. So I think it definitely puts the consumer in a, in, a, in a very positive light when that happens. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, my dears. Uh, we have a question typed in here that says, how does Rooker-Feldman affect an FDCPA case while a foreclosure state case is still going on? I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Greg, I mean, tell you, it's like, they take it, these are very, very complex legal principles. I'll tell you, I don't know everything about everything, but, you know, I, I happen to know that issue. We can talk a little bit about it until, your, you know, your listeners get, get too bored about it. So I, I do happen to know about that issue, so let's, let's talk about that. So let's talk about this Rooker-Feldman doctrine. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means, you know, essentially that you cannot collaterally attack state court judgment um, in federal court. So let's give an example. So we have a, uh, a debt. Let's talk, about, let's talk about a Citibank debt. goes to trial, uh, and the consumer gets a judgment against them. The judge signs the judgment, stamps it with the clerk, and files it. Uh, and it is this official piece of paper that says you owe a certain amount of money. Okay? Well, in state court, you have your rights, your procedural rights. You could appeal the case. You could ask for a new trial. You could do a couple different things, okay? But the jurisdiction of that court and the forcibility of that judgment remains with that state court. So what the Rooker-Feldman doctrine is saying is that you couldn't at the same time then file a federal case and say, listen, judge number two, you're in the federal court system. I want you to make a determination that this judgment isn't valid. In fact, I want you to issue an order that you're going to set aside that state court judgment and because that state court judge, what he did was improper. That's where you really get the uh, this this issue of Rooker Feldman. It becomes a little more complicated with case law, but that's that's the the general principle. Okay, so now you have another example. You have a pending state case. This, let's take this this example of the state case uh, where Citibank is sued, and um, you file a, a, a simultaneous action in federal court. You're saying, listen. Uh, the way you engage in the collection of the state act, uh, the state um, case, violates the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Judge, I want you to adjudicate that issue. Uh, it's not necessarily a Rooker-Feldman issue, okay? Because it has to be a direct collateral attack upon a state court judgment. So you have this pending case in state court, but simultaneously this pending case in federal court. And so what happens generally is that um, you'll have one of the courts talk to the lawyers and say, you know, what should we do? Is, is this federal case, is it, is it predicated upon um, what's going on in the state case or what the final outcome of the state case is going to be? And if so, we're going to go ahead and stay our case on the federal side until there is that outcome. Uh, and so I've seen that happen before. It's happened in our cases. And, you know, win or lose in the state court, that has a direct effect on what the judge's determination in that federal uh, court case and what that federal question is. It doesn't necessarily affect the Rooker Feldman doctrine. It's only when you're trying to seek relief from another court, generally the federal court, to set aside some type of state court judgment um, collaterally. Well, what if the what if the state court judgment is based on uh, an erroneous or ultra virus interpretation of a federal statute that is clear on its face? Well, again, I. The way you should look at it is is what court is interpreting that. So I mean, you have your um, different venues. So as an example, let's say that, um, one, you have to have jurisdiction to go into a federal court. 
So assuming this interpretation of this federal statute gave you some type of federal standing, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, it was filed that in the state court action. Well, the defendant has a right to remove that case to federal court. You, know, you can't remove it on a, on a, on a cross-claim, um, but you could remove that action. So have it done in one, in one court. What you need to be wary about is trying to have some federal judge uh, make a determination on already a settled issue or a pending case um, on the state side. And, and there's, there's no question. There's some crossover there. I mean, there are cases um, that go up on the state appellate side that do interpret federal law. I mean, I've been involved in them. There, there are appellate cases. On the other side, there are um, cases in the Ninth Circuit that I have that also interpret state law. They have that right. And you cannot collaterally attack that by going to a court of other jurisdiction. Now, a lot of the times these appellate courts, when they know that generally it's, it's the exclusive jurisdiction of interpreting these statutes, be it state versus federal or vice versa, that they usually take somewhat of a hands-off approach. They could invite, the Ninth Circuit could invite uh, the California Supreme Court and kick it over there to interpret a purely California state law. What I've seen is they'll usually take a, a stance uh, that isn't so aggressive in interpreting the state law, um, and a lot of times maybe make a decision, but the but the opinion becomes unpublished. So it doesn't have precedential value and really have that impact on state law um, where they wait for an appellate court um, to make that decision. All righty. Um... Another question was, uh, when should you go for a verdict, and when should you go for a settlement? <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, you, you take a look at, um, you know, all these cases statistically. I mean, criminal case versus a, a civil case, what, 98, 99% of these cases don't get tried. Okay? They settle. The majority of them settle. Okay, so clearly, you know, you have to take a step back and take a look at the facts of your case and figure uh, if it's if it's one economically viable to go all the way through trial. Um, are you willing to take um, the, the the risk um, that someone other than yourself and the parties involved are going to make the ultimate decision? And I'll tell you, I mean, the first time I argued in front of the Ninth Circuit, we're arguing about an issue um, that you know was a first impression up there. And part of my argument was, uh, you know, I, I pointed at all the the, the, uh, the books in, uh, in in the uh, in, in the chambers where they're lined up. You see all those case books, and and what was important to remember there, you get all these case books and all these cases to fill those pages. The reality is, the reason why there's a published case there is because one party lost. And so while it's easy to think like, well, I'm going to go to court, I'm going to make, I'm going to go to trial, and I'm going to win. You have to remember, there's always a party that's on the other end. You know, as, as, as one of the magistrate judges who does all the settlement conferences, there's always the other side of that pancake. You flip it over and there's another side saying it's right or wrong, but there's always a different view. And so um, there is an opportunity where you might lose. And I'll tell you, I think a, a very good trial lawyer that, that um, I've done cases with, with before has tried tons of cases um, and has all the accolades. And he sat me down and said, listen, you get ten cases on, on your best day, okay? You're going to lose your best case two times out of ten. And I'll tell you, you're going to win your worst case 
you know, two times out of ten. So there's this variance here. There's cases that, that you shouldn't have won and you will and vice versa. And I'll tell you, I've, I've tried some, some cases that were just outrageous uh, and, and, and to the point where the judge was saying, listen, the jury's out there deliberating. Defendant, I'm ordering you to bring in your corporate representatives and your corporate books because there's going to be a verdict against you and there's going to be an award of punitive damages. And I want to be ready to go. And I felt we tried the hell out of that case. The jury came back, you know, eight to two. Uh, against us, against our client. I mean, the court was shocked. I was shocked. Um, but that's what's going to happen. And so, you know, when you say, well, look, I'm going to try this case to a verdict or I'm going to settle it, you know, uh, the, the question is, are you willing to take that risk? Um, or are you willing to, to know at the end of the day what that result's going to be? Maybe it's not a perfect result. Uh, and, you know, the, what they say a sign of a good settlement is both parties leave a little unhappy. At least at the end of the day, you're going to know what you're going to get. And so, you know, that conversation comes up almost in every single case that I have with my clients where, you know, the courts are requiring you go to some type of settlement conference or mediation. Uh, and so there's something that's usually offered, and i got to sit my client down, and, and usually the lecture that I have with them is I say, listen, i got I got a 1,000 cases, okay? But you you have one case. This is your case. Okay, and so as your lawyer, I can only tell you the risks of going forward versus the risks of settling. This is your case. Ultimately, it's your decision. But at, at the end of the day, you've got to live with the result. I, I'm going to go on to another case, but this is your one case. So are, do you want to take that known result, or do we want to roll the dice knowing that it's either thumbs up or thumbs down at the time of verdict? So that's that's a little bit, you know, every case is different, but... You know, it's, it's it's a scary thing to sit there in front of that jury. Um, another thing that comes to mind is that uh, some of the questions that were posed are have a, a spectrum of possible answers. And without sounding like uh, an advertisement for the American Bar Association, um, I think it would probably be a good idea to consult with someone who has um, equal... Um, veracity in federal and state courts so that uh, you could get the best opinions. Maybe consult with two or three attorneys and uh, find out how to settle your things the best way possible. And At least that way you have an informed decision. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with getting a couple people's you know, view on things. Um, you know, it, it's as lawyers, we kind of become detached a little bit from it, but you know, we all often have to remind ourselves that these are these cases have a lot of you know emotion behind it. You know, it's not you know, the first time someone's slighted, they don't run into a lawyer's office. You know, usually you know, trying to resolve this thing amongst yourselves. It's only it's only this last resort where you have this feeling of powerlessness where you can't do anything about it that you start consulting a lawyer. So these these cases are emotionally charged, and so sometimes it's it's good not just to you know take what your lawyer is saying, but take a step back and talk to somebody else that you trust who may not be as emotionally invested in the case um, to give you a little bit of a, a view from the outside, to give you a little bit more perspective. Um, so that's, you know, if, it, if that being another lawyer um, or, you know, just somebody who, who you can you can spitball some ideas and, and, and you feel confident um, that, that they give you some good advice. It's something to think about. That's cool. Uh, once again, everybody, uh, press star 8 on your telephone if you'd like to speak and ask a question. And uh, 
please type in on the chat board if you would like to just type in a question. Um, one of the other things I can't remember, Josh. Did we did we talk a little bit at all? Forgive me, I don't remember about the difference between a class action and a mass action case. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's a little bit of a different procedural vehicle. I think we talked about a little bit about the purposes and why we want to do a class action. Now, a class action procedurally, it's it's really one person, just one person bringing an action on behalf of potentially a whole bunch of people. And the, so the identity of those whole bunch of people um, at the beginning of the case are unknown. And if the case goes through and, and the court were to certify it for, for class action status, um, the identities of those people um, are, are revealed and they're brought in with the opportunity to be able to participate in any type of settlement if there is one or opt out and maybe pursue their own action or not participate at all. A mass action is similar but at that case, you would start with the number of, of plaintiffs that um, that you, that would want to bring the case. So, uh, you know, as an example, let's, let's say, like, you know, an airplane crash. Now, God forbid. I mean, there's hundreds of people on that plane you know, that suffered injury. So a mass action would be taking a group of those who were retained by, you know, one or more law firms who brought the action, and they all brought the case together. So there would be 20 or 40 different plaintiffs against a certain number of defendants. That would be viewed more like, you know, a, a mass action. And when you're dealing with a mass tort, you can still have an individual plaintiff versus a defendant, but we know that it has such a large reach. These personal injury cases, you know, with these drug companies or these medical devices, those are still dealt with. They're not necessarily a mass action, but, I mean, they're, they're viewed there's a mass tort. We know that there's going to be a lot of cases, a lot of litigation, because there's a lot of affected people, although it's going to be brought on an individual one-by-one um, action, the court's have steps to be able to consolidate those cases and streamline the proceedings and so that they're, they're more efficient for both parties. Now, the joke is always made here in America that we have the best justice that money can buy, right? So, uh, can you speak a little bit to the consumer in terms of considering the potential return on investment of their defense in terms of do they just want to win because they want to win, or do they want to have an economic uh, outcome as a result of that? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, listen, that, you know, litigation is expensive, okay? In these cases, uh, to, to take discovery, I mean, I fly all over the country, you know, almost every week it seems like I'm on a plane, and I'm taking depositions. You know, that's, that's expensive. Um, and, you know, my clients can't afford that. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're uh, paying the bill, and hopefully there's going to be a good result, a positive result. Um, but that's the power of the, the legislation that's through the federal side or a lot of these states. I mean, it really, that you have to impress upon state or federal legislatures to even that playing field. Because, you know, while I'm successful and hopefully I continue to be successful in the future, I'm never going to have the the money and resources that Citibank or Bank of America is going to have. I'll never have that. They'll always be able to outspend us. But when you have statutes and legislatures writing into those statutes that uh, there is an attorney fees provision, righteous cases are brought, and they're brought on behalf of consumers, and the, the attorneys are willing to front that time, that time, that expense on a righteous case. And at the end of the day, when they prevail, the consumer gets their remedy, and the defendants, the banks, end up having to pay that that bill. 
Uh, so that that's something to look at. There's there's always legislation going on where one side of the aisle wants to cut that, that those those rights for consumers. But the attorney's fees provision are a very important uh, mechanism. Well, um, I think that we're. I'm going to say specifically North Carolina, Nevada, um, California. Any of you guys on the call would like to uh, get a last question in here, uh, please press star 8 on your telephone or type a question into the board. Uh, I'll give you all a second. Uh, Nevada has a question. Welcome Hi. to the Nevada. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Just about broke my eardrums there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Hello. Welcome to the call. You're on the phone with uh, Josh Swigert. What is your question, please? Thank you. Um, actually, it, it's not a question. I just um, heard you mention Nevada. Um, I am in Las Vegas. And, Greg, uh, you've got contact information for me. My name's Terry. We've talked before. And I just wanted to let other people in Nevada know that uh, if they would like to get together to discuss um, things that are going on in the Las Vegas area with foreclosures and so on, I'm trying to uh, contact other people and put together some kind of a support group uh, for all of us going through the same thing. So if anybody's interested in doing something like that, you can certainly contact Greg, and I'm authorizing him to pass out my information. We can get together for coffee somewhere and talk about uh, what's going on here and what options we all may have and support each other. That's all. Josh, don't, Josh don't you have an office in Nevada? We do. Las Vegas, actually. Absolutely. Oh, you do? Oh. I do. I do. Wonderful. Do you ever host? Do you ever host? Absolutely. In fact, we um, we were pretty. Uh, you know, we're going to open up a new office out there um, in about two or three weeks. Um, so you know, we hopefully, give consumers an opportunity to be able to to go out there and some more resources out there for them. Um, so we're 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 out there. We're available. Oh, wonderful. Um, uh, your contact information, I'm sure Greg will have that up for us. Um, I will more than likely be in touch. Do that. We are more than happy to assist in any way we can. Thank you so much. Um, and your website is West Coast Litigation? WestCoastLitigation.com. That's right. All right. And, and my so. email is Josh at West Coast Litigation. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All righty. Uh, question is, would Josh, would Josh consider filing a federal suit in New York or Washington, D.C.? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess the question is what, what the case is. I mean, I'm, I'm licensed in Washington, D.C. as well, and, uh, you know, we've, we've dealt with cases there. And I'll tell you, we've, we brought cases and I've litigated class cases in, in New York. Um, you know, it depends on what the case is. It depends on, you know, what those claims are. Uh, and, and a lot of times there's more than one venue that that's available to file in. So, I mean, I've had the opportunity on the same case to make a choice. And it's generally the plaintiff's choice. It can be filed, let's say, in California or it can be filed in New York. 
So there's different strategy reasons on why to bring one in one jurisdiction or not. I'll tell you, New York, great set of it's a great court, the great courts out there, great set of judges. Uh, they're very demanding, very demanding on both sides. And so I've, I've litigated class cases in federal court in New York. And I'll tell you, you got to you got to bring your A game uh, because they, uh, it, you know, it's a rocket docket out there. So you know, if you have a case that you know is going to take a little bit longer. Or you know it's going to be hard to get documents and you're going to need more time, you know, sometimes it's better to pick a, a different venue. But, you know, the, the moral of the story is that a class case with a natural, national reach, I mean, it could be brought, brought in Washington State. The, the impact could still feel, be felt in, with residents of New York or D.C. All right. California, do you have a question? Hello, California. California, here I come. Do you have a question? Okay, well, I guess not. All right. Um, I guess to wrap up then, uh, unless anybody wants to uh, take one last shot and press star 8 on your phone or type in another question, uh, we're getting toward the end of the program here. And uh, uh, one last question that I've got for Josh is based on something that he and I spoke about earlier, and that was that he had some thoughts with regards to the future of the CFPB and Dodd-Frank Act that it might be looking like they would strike down certain arbitration clauses and limits on class actions in maybe all contracts in America. You know, the, uh, if, if the listeners get anything out of this program, I'll, I'll tell you, the, uh, the forced arbitration that, uh, that the bank and, and industry has pushed upon the, the American consumers is, is horrendous. You know, the, the cases that went to the Supreme Court, you know, starting with Conception versus AT&T, um, allowed that. And the cases that followed that, now you can't sign up for iTunes, you can't sign up online somewhere. You know, you go take your car in. In order to have these contracts and services or products purchased or done, um, the consumers are being forced to to sign arbitration agreements. So what that means is that you don't get your day in court. You know, you're, you're waiving your your Seventh Amendment right to a to a jury trial. You're going to go in front of you know a, uh, an arbitrator who's not bound by the the civil or federal rules of evidence or procedure you can make somewhat of an arbitrary decision. Um, and, you know, you have, to, you have to think for a moment, you know, how often um, are you going to bring an arbitration case in front of that arbitrator versus, let's say, Bank of America? Bank of America is probably going to arbitrate quite a few in front of that. And so, you know, there's, there's always a question raised, is there some type of prejudice, you know, against the consumers on those cases? Because, I mean, boy... If that arbitration starts coming out, they'll go to somebody else. Bank of America will take their business somewhere else on these arbitration clauses. And so, you know, for the past oh, almost 10 years, we've been consumers have been stuck with these forced arbitrations, class actions. The courts, Supreme Courts, have held that the waiver thing that you won't participate or engage or bring a class action in in addition to arbitration um, has been upheld by the Supreme Court. And so. You know, the, by, by making this, this, this false argument that the consumer has the right to enter or not enter into that contract. Well, boy, when you're looking to open a bank account, you can't find a bank that won't give you a forced arbitration clause. You can't go rent, 
you know, a car that doesn't have an arbitration clause. So this fallacy that the consumers have some type of option uh, to be able to enter into these contracts of essentially adhesion is just is is crazy. But the pendulum, I think, is going to swing the other way. You know, after the financial crisis, the consumers got a lot of power back. You know, the Dodd-Frank Act uh, and and putting in place the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Uh, and so it's been rumored the studies have gone out uh, and they're completed. And it's been rumored that the CFPB is going to issue an order, a ruling essentially, that's going to preclude some type of consumer um, arbitration. Now, the scope of that is unknown, but it's, it's pretty well settled that a, a ruling is going to be issued. And I, I like to predict it's going to happen before June. The and uh, is, hopefully it would be retroactive. <laughs> Agreed. Now, now, we talk about you know bringing cases and doing cases. There's no question. Whatever is going to be promulgated by the CFPB is going to go through the court system because banks and industries and insurance companies aren't going to put up with this without a fight. But we're starting to get that power back little by little. So it could be as much as a, a, a wiping the slate clean with, with arbitration agreements, class action waivers, these forced arbitration agreements on all consumer financial uh, contracts, all consumer employment contracts, it could be, versus the, the other side where it might be, you know, a slight move in the right direction where at a minimum they're going to strike down these class action waivers. I gave you that example earlier that, you know, these companies stealing little bits of money. When you have an arbitration agreement uh, that forces an individual action, the, the companies will never see any type of um, remedies against them. The consumers will never see any type of redress. Because it I mean, doesn't make economic sense to go and bring a $5 lawsuit in, in an arbitration context. One of the fundamental principles of contract law that's 5,000 years old is that a valid contract is then bargained for, which means two people talking, coming to a meeting of the minds, and neither one forcing the other one by being the 800-pound gorilla. That's that's an underlying essence of contract law in the world. I mean, you can go through the Bible, you can go all the way up to today. I mean, all those fundamental principles are the underlying essence of that. And some of these things where you got to click on a box that says, I agree with this agreement, and you don't get to bargain for it, um, it flies in the face of what the definition of a true contract really is. Don't you agree? I couldn't agree more. So I'm really glad to hear what you're saying about that. Hey, West North Carolina has raised their hand. Hello, West North Carolina. You're going to be the last call for the night. Okay, cool. Thank you for taking the call, and thank you for this wonderful information. I must say I am delighted um, with your attitude and your approach to consumerism, and I find it refreshing, and holy smokes, thank you for that. And um, I just have a sort of a maybe a gut, um, get your gut opinion on something. I, I had a, an action, um, and I say, in a more rural county in western North Carolina, and I was not successful, but in the process I learned that um, in a non-judicial state, it's a, it's sort of a, it's a, as you probably know, it's a streamlined version of, of law, and it's more like a, the used car salesman's version of, Let's sit him down, stand him up, spin him around, give him a coke, and render a verdict. Um, 
And, and, and my short conclusion is that maybe 80% of the, of the foreclosures in this county are unlawful. Um, so as a consumer, would you, I mean, as a consumer advocate, what would you say to that? Or is it, is it misplaced? It misplaced as far as your, your view on these. The, yes. Yeah, I mean, it could just be my sort of, yeah, my prejudice or, um, I mean, non-judicial state is sort of, I mean, not constitutional, but that's just my opinion. I'm not, you know. No, I mean, you know, California, I, I don't know the procedural rules on foreclosures in North Carolina, but, you know, as far as being a non-judicial state, you know, California is a non-judicial state as well. These are just going to be done with, with trustee sales, and there's not going to be an action filed in the court. You know, they get a little bit of protection of uh, anti-deficiency legislation, so you're not going to be be saddled with balance. But the reality is, you know, the consumer's still going to lose their home. Uh, and, you know, that's 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 something that's, that's equal across the lines over in California all the way over to the East Coast and you know, North Carolina. And so, you know, I, mean, I think you got to take, you know, everything we, we said tonight and everything that's been on this program prior uh, where we kind of start chipping away from that. You know, we start getting information and sharing that information about, you know, these these different courts. And thank God for the Internet now where you have these different decisions. And I read them from states that, that I that I practice in and I don't practice in on what would work, what arguments would work and what wouldn't work, um, what evidence is being obtained um, in different cases that maybe I can use in mine. And so, you know, it, it's important to, to keep an, an eye towards that. Um, and, you know, in your case, you know, I think you and I share the same view. I mean, I think the you know, these foreclosure cases are tilted um, in favor of the banks. And, I mean, maybe that's just my my prejudice as a consumer advocate. But you know, I, you stand where you are, and, and likewise I do. And, and I see these cases coming in day and out, day, day in and day out, um, with the lack of evidence they have, um, the lack of what I would see as really a fair hearing um, before you take people's property away. And so. Uh, you know, I don't think the pendulum has swung all the way back. Um, I think we have a long way to go, um, you know, and so hopefully, you know, I'll tell you, I, I keep touting them, but the CFPB, I mean, that's really, you know, the, 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 that's the fourth branch of government. I mean, thank God that, that, that it's, it's set up the way it is. I mean, it has very little um, checks. You can't pull the purse strings. It's not like the president can veto some some legislation essentially that comes out of there, and so I think we're going to see through that or that that federal organization is separate and apart from people bringing cases through the courts. I mean, a lot of positive regulation um, that's finally going to going to um, cut in favor of the consumer. Now, you know, granted, that doesn't help your situation. It doesn't help the consumers that I represented back in '08 and '09 who had their phone their their homes stripped away from them, possibly you know inappropriately. But hopefully going forward, you know, we're not going to have this happen again. Well, does that help? Yeah, it helps. And, and Paper Cake does point out that North Carolina is a quasi-judicial um, jurisdiction. And and one of the things that they gutted from, from the process is due process. I mean, even though the clerk decides, it's sort of – it's very much like you're buying a used car from an unreputable dealer. I mean – and I think that's why 80% of the cases are lost in this in this county. And I and I had a chance to go through their files in depth when I had my case. And let me say I looked at hundreds of cases, and that's how I formulated that decision. But um, in any case, um, I'm wondering if there's a consumer advocate that would that would be willing to um, 
I mean, it's kind of a dangerous territory too to, to put paint a paint a uh, pay the emblem on the, the clerk of the court or the the court system. Well, you know, listen. I mean, I I I, I don't disagree with you. Where it looks like at times these these courts, you know, rubber stamp some of these judgments. And and you know, I, I've brought some cases where I'm like, you know, make that argument to the court. Essentially, the argument is. You know, Judge, if you're doing your job, you just wouldn't rubber stamp these things. You'd actually take a little bit of a harder look. Now, that's probably not the right presentation. You know, the way I found being a little more effective is saying, Judge, if if the other side had told you truthfully what was going on, they hadn't concealed these documents and made false representations, you would never have granted that. They lied to you. Uh, And so that's usually, you know, a a little bit better better approach. But, you know, I'll tell you, you've got to get involved. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to organizations, but, you know, the, the National Association of Consumer Advocates, um, National Consumer Law Center, they have national reach. I, I speak with those organizations regularly. And they got they got advocates similar to what we do, you know, in North Carolina and every other state across the country. So that's a good resource um, to be able to find, uh, you know, a, a consumer advocate because, you know, there's, there's not many of us, but, you know, at least we do stick together. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josh. I hope we can have you again on the on the on the uh, Gala Goose. Well, yeah, Thank you much. All righty. So, uh, uh, for those of you who are just on the phone um, and not on the chat, uh, please remember that you can go to chatgrabber.com and then punch in our show number, 139335, and then select uh, this episode, which I think is number 25. And uh, you can then go read a text version of tonight's chat with uh, any of the links or email references and comments of the rest of the group. Um, Josh, do you have anything to uh, wrap up in terms of uh, closing thoughts for everybody? Well, you know, I, I guess the only thing I could I could leave everybody with is, is is this. I mean, you know, we you know I started this law firm with with just my partner and I. You know, we're we're two guys. I'm similar to just you know these consumers who, who are on the phone. They just you know they're one person. Um, but but the reality is, you know, when you, when you start looking into these things, you start taking a stand. You say you're just not going to do this anymore. You call your 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 state legislature. You call your congressperson. You say, listen, this these issues are affecting real people, and, and you kind of band to get together. Um, that's how we can effectuate the change. And we can't be sitting by idly. And, and just and just take this stuff. We can't be ignoring these lawsuits and just defaulting. You know, we can't just um, you know throw our hands up and say, well, maybe they don't have the evidence. They can go ahead and take our phone. There are people out there who can help you, and we got to band together. Uh, and we got to tell these, these politicians and legislatures that that we do have a voice. When we get together, we can we can really effectually change. So um, don't give up and you know fight the good fight. Alrighty, we want to thank Josh Swigert for coming on our show tonight and uh, sharing such helpful information. Uh, Before we go, uh, Josh, uh, remind the audience uh, how to contact you uh, for more information, services, lectures, and the like. Uh, Your website, phone number, email. Sure. uh, You know, we practice in numerous states, but, you know, the website goes across all those. It's uh, westcoastlitigation.com. You can click through there, and if you have questions or you need a consumer advocate in your area, I'm sure I can direct you in the right direction to get a couple references. You know, my website, uh, my email is just that, that, J-O-S-H at westcoastlitigation.com. And if you want to 
Um, call down to San Diego. You know, while I'm here, it's 619-233-7770. And more than happy, I, you know, we have, you know, 11 attorneys across, you know, seven different states and more than happy to do what we can for you and answer questions. And, you know, we're not going to charge anything for that. And if it's in a state that we don't practice in, at least I'll give you a couple references to, to people who are like-minded and consumer advocates who can, uh, can hopefully help you along your way. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, all righty. Well, make sure your contact info is on the chat board, too, for folks to download. And as always, anybody can email us here at thegallantgoose at gmail.com or go to the website, gallantgoose.com. Also, a reminder, if anybody has any suggestions for future guest speakers, please feel free to send us an email with their information, and we'll try to help get them on board as well. We hope tonight's program has been helpful for you guys. As a quick program note before we say goodnight, uh, next week, uh, March 24th, we're going to have a gentleman named Tex Mason, or Masson, I'm not quite sure how he pronounces it, of THCTrust.org. Tex will be sharing some of his research and insights into what he calls alternative lawful methods of consumer defense. Um, as opposed to attorney work, I think this is going to be a little bit more outside the box, so those of you guys in orbit around Pluto, this would be a great call for you. Um, you can check out his website at uh, www.thctrust.org, and we hope that you'll all be able to join us for that call. Thank you so much, Josh. And on behalf of you and all of our dedicated team here at uh, the Gallant Goose and Friends, we thank you. You have a great night. Thank you. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is Big Papa Stamper reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois. In a place they call Chicago I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago Now see I was still on the city street With a song to buy but I'm here to tell my story South side in the zone they call the valley. So one with four penny candy, chase rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city street, was a strong survivor. Seven. Daddy worked two jobs. Mama held it together. Walked by the school. Had to fight every day. Sometimes I kept my lunch money. Sometimes they took it away. I'm born in Illinois. A place they call Chicago.
Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.